Hi there, this is Dan Jones, and this is my podcast. I'm a researcher and an oceanographer, to be more specific, and I started this podcast about a month ago to capture some of the conversations that I've been having with my colleagues. I'm fortunate enough to get to work with really interesting people, to be around really interesting people, to travel, to go to conferences, and uh, it felt a bit unfair, me just keeping all that to myself, so I thought... Why don't I try? Why don't I try to capture a little bit of that, and kind of share it? It's a long format podcast. It's very relaxed. It's very conversational. It's barely produced. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I put very very little uh, time into cropping things or to uh, you know having segments. There basically are no segments. I'm following that kind of long format uh, tradition now. I guess we could call it. So um, I'm really. I was honored to have Lynn Talley on the program. Lynn Talley is a, she's a professor of oceanography out at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And uh, you may or may not know her, but in our field, she's kind of a, a, a giant. She's really well-known, really well-respected. Um, she's very friendly and very insightful. And uh, honestly, she's uh, very easy to talk to as well. We sat down at the uh, AGU Ocean Sciences meeting in Portland uh, earlier this month, just a couple weeks ago, and uh, gosh, it was, a, it was, like I said, an honor to have her there. She uh, showed up at 8 a.m. Can you believe that we did this at 8 a.m., and she was willing to start her day early and come and sit in a, a room with, uh, with me, somebody she doesn't really know that well, and record a conversation, so I really appreciated her time, and I really appreciated having her here. We talk about it a little in the episode, but uh, in, in addition to having really excellent physical insight and ability to understand things theoretically and an ability to uh, visualize the complexities of ocean circulation, she's also a pillar of the community. She draws together different researchers. She holds different communities together, uh, not by herself, of course, but she's a very important part of the social fabric that makes up oceanography. Um, I was just kind of looking. It's a, She's a fellow of the American Meteorological Society, the American Geophysical Union, the American Academy of the Arts and Sciences. She's been an IPCC author and she is another, uh, she's doing it again. She's also uh, an IPCC author on the uh, upcoming round. She uh, spearheads the World Ocean Circulation Experiment, or she plays a huge leadership role in that. And uh, in the 1990s, she did. And uh, CLIVAR is something that she's been involved with heavily now. Uh, CLIVAR is climate variability. I could go on. I mean, there's a whole... She, we discussed it in the episode. There's a Wikipedia page that has just all of her accomplishments and all of the uh, things that she's been involved with. She's been to sea numerous times. But instead of... Uh, going through and listing out all of the things on her biography, all of the honors and awards and uh, accomplishments, uh, let's just get to the conversation as quickly as possible. Uh, so again, I'd like to thank um, Lynn Talley for appearing on the program, and I'd like to thank uh, the AGU, specifically uh, Nancy, Nancy Bompe. I'm sorry if I'm saying your last name wrong. I hope that I'm getting it right, because the uh, AGU... During Ocean Sciences in Portland, they were kind enough to get us a quiet room 
to have a conversation in, and that was super helpful. I really appreciate it. Um, so yeah, without any further ado, let's get into the conversation with Lynn Talley. Exactly, perfectly. Amazing. <laughs> I timed that just right. <laughs> Is that the one from across the street over there? Yeah, it's right between my um, my hotel and here. So I figured out I got the mobile app going. So I'm, I order on my way out the door of the hotel and say to pick up when I walk through. That works. <laughs> yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. So uh, tell me what this is about. Yeah, sure. So if you don't mind, I'll probably close the door. That's fine. Check this out. There's a CO2 sensor on the wall. A C. Yeah, it says it's PPM CO2 590 PPM. Oh my PPM Oh, it's a lead building. Yeah. It's a lead certified building. <laughs> so of course I had to exhale on it to watch the, <laughs> the number go away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you just blow on it, it goes up like crazy. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. What a great thing to take for a school, like a, one of those meters and have the kids blow on them. Is it normal for just like a room to have 600? I have 600? no clue. Me neither. No, I don't know. So, yeah, so let me tell um, you about this thing. Um, basically, it's an idea that kind of wouldn't go away. Uh-huh. And um, uh, I, I kept having this idea that, uh, well, let me start over and kind of start at the beginning. Where, So I've been listening to a podcast for a while, for a few years. And it became like part of my life, something that I would do, washing dishes or commuting or something. Wow. And I really appreciated it as like an alternative to, I like music a lot, but it's like a, sometimes you just might not feel like that or I don't feel like that Right, sometimes. and you're done listening to the same news program every single morning with the same commentator or something. That's what I always listen to the same news, but yeah. then I switched to music. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. Wow. So it, um, so... Uh, I kept having this thought that like, wouldn't it be nice if we kind of did the same thing for our field or kind of captured some, you know, in-group conversations? Yeah. Uh, because I think that's part of what's useful about it is you just get a little bit of a window of like, what it's like in a particular community, uh -huh. like what those kind of conversations are, and I've only recorded a few of them so far, mm -hmm. um, uh, three, but they've they've gone pretty well. I did the first one with uh, Dave Monday. I think okay. I mentioned that, that that was fine, you know, and that was really enjoyable. Um, and uh, yeah, so thanks again for agreeing to do it. I'm really, I'm glad to have you here. I'm glad uh, to okay. have you in the room. <laughs> I loved your response when I asked you for it. When I when I asked you uh, to, you know, appear, uh -huh. you said, "Well, you said it sounds fun, or at least uh, at least not difficult, or at least not stressful." <laughs> so like, if it's not fun, at least it won't be stressful. <laughs> it should be. Should be easy going. Yeah, AGU is doing this whole program. You're aware of? I mean, they're they're doing filming right here. AGU it's called History. Yeah. It's. Do you know about no, it? No, I don't know about. Oh, this. they're right over in the next you know little embayment of rooms. So they have a whole big camera set up, and you sit on a chair, and you get a, you know the whole. It's it's an actual recording. It's for their centennial. Is it a little intimidating? It's a little got... intimidating. I really yeah. Well, so they said, well, why did you agree to do this? And I said, because you asked. Because <laughs> <laughs> you asked, um, and it would feel weird to say no, I guess. <laughs> like it would. Or are you good at saying no? Can you? I'm pr I'm good at saying no. Good um, at saying no, no. I've been, but I am an AGU officer, so I felt you know like well, okay, that's part of what you get elected to do. Kind of obligated. So, yeah. Obligated to do. Well, it, yeah. it just it's it, there's uh, less intimidation involved. <laughs> so yeah. It's just part of the 
get rid of the so scenery. When, when did you get in? How's the country? Here? Yeah, when did you arrive? Um, Sunday night. Yeah. You? Uh, I came in on Saturday, oh. hoping to give myself an extra day to uh -huh. beat the jet lag jet and stuff. Lag. It didn't help that much, oh. but uh, I did at least get over to Powell's to the bookstore um, uh, across the river. I haven't been anywhere. No? You should yeah. go. You should drop all of your obligations and go. Right. We could just go to the bookstore now. We could just do that. Powell's bookstore. Okay. Yeah, it's gigantic, and it uh, takes up like a whole city block, basically, and uh, they've got multiple levels and multiple floors. Oh. Weirdly, no oceanography textbooks, though. I couldn't find any, like, oh. textbooks. Textbook. They had some oceanography stuff, but it was mm -hmm. more like, um, kind of, um, about fish and uh, ecosystems and things like that, but there was no, there but no they physics. they could sell here. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's almost no oceanography academically here in Portland. It's all in Corvallis. Um, when I worked in Corvallis, I was a postdoc down there. And, and you used to grumble because Corvallis is a small college town <laughs> and it's two hours from here, which yeah. is the metropolis. And <laughs> Did you and come up very often? Or? I never came here at all. I, I think I might have flown out of here once and then when I was a graduate student a long time ago, uh, we had a workshop up at Mount Hood at Timberline Lodge. So I've been in, out, in and out of Timberline Lodge, which is an amazing place if you have a day. Yeah, is that this around here, Timberland? Mount Lodge? Hood. Yeah, it's where the ski local skiing is. Oh, okay. Um, there's a lot of cross country and downhill up there. It's just one single volcano, so in terms of number of runs, it doesn't have them. But it has permanent snow all summer, so they do training um, yeah. of you know the high level skiers up there all year. Uh, and then they have this lodge that was built in the 1930s. It's all out of its logs, and it's gorgeous. Yeah. Huge old-fashioned 1930s lodge. I'd like to see that, yeah. Yeah, so we had a nuclear workshop up there. <laughs> Sounds like a good choice. Is this seating arrangement okay? Is this uh, the yeah, kind of so thought? what am I supposed to talk into? You this don't have like to talk directly into it. Oh, all right. To, if you don't mind, you want to scoot just a little all bit. All right. This, this oh, so way. have we already but started? Yeah. Oh, we, we have. Did. Yeah. <laughs> Just like roll into it. <laughs> okay. So that's one well, of the interesting equipment. That's one of the tricks. That, it's not meant to be a trick, really. It's just meant to like. So uh, in in a lot of these long format podcast, I totally just stole this you know idea from long format yeah. podcasts. You just kind of start. You have everything going uh -huh. before the guest arrives, and then uh -huh. they come in. So you don't have that awkward first. You don't have that awkward moment of like now we have begun. Oh, all right. Well, so I'm kinda, slurping my know, coffee so while we're talking. It's all right. It's all right. I, think, <laughs> I don't. I don't think that would be a, be a problem. Good. Yeah, nah, it's fine. I'm not. Okay. I actually met um, one of the AGU podcasters yesterday, and we were talking about this about how um, with this long format, I have it so easy. I don't really have to worry about you know the sound that much. You know, as long uh -huh. as you do a decent job at capturing people. Yeah. These, these microphones are pretty good. These, this was a gift from my wife, actually, because uh. I've been talking about doing this podcast thing for a long time, and she surprised me with these, you know, two microphones to, like, enable me. <laughs> go That's ahead. great. Do it. Yeah. Plug them in, and off you go. Yeah, absolutely. Great. <laughs> so... Uh, I, admit, I was looking at your Wikipedia page. You have a Wikipedia page. Oh, my God. I have never looked at it. Is okay. that weird? Is it, is it, I think I would feel weird if I had a Wikipedia yeah. page. Yeah. My mother, well, yeah, I I never Google my name. <laughs> my father, unfortunately, did a couple weeks ago. My mother called me up, and she said, you'd better check this out and get some stuff removed because it comes up with, with yeah, I probably got trolled or something. Oh, yeah. Um, but I just don't even want to, I can't do it. So, no, I haven't. The only time I looked at my Wikipedia page was when somebody said there was something really wrong on there. So I went in and edited that out. 
it said I was married to somebody I wasn't married to. Oh. <laughs> like, who even did that? Like, who, where did right. you, like, what is that? Who came up with this really odd information? It wasn't, um, it wasn't completely off. I mean, it was stupid. Um, it was obviously completely uninformed. Yeah. Uh, somebody just guessing. And, and they decided to take the time and they to just log in. Thought, they logged in. They wrote this whole article on me. And <laughs> I, guess, I guess people have to do something with their time. And they're like, I know what I'll do. So I have a Wikipedia page. It. Okay, good. You do. I probably should check it out. Huh? Yeah, well, you can tell me. I can tell you the stuff that I learned from the page, and you can tell me if any of it is, is totally wrong. Okay. So you grew up in New York in Schenectady? I'm probably saying Schenectady. that wrong. Schenectady. Yeah. Yeah, I knew I, would, I was going to say that wrong when I saw the name. I'm like, I'm going to say it wrong. Try sure. spelling it when you're five. Yeah. <laughs> Where do we live? Why do we live here? It was, the, it was the first long word I knew how to spell. <laughs> Can we live somewhere that's easier to spell? Yeah. Um, so you were, you were um, so that's where you were born? Yeah, upstate New yeah. York. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's because there's a General Electric, um, huge General Electric facility there. So my dad worked for GE. Oh, okay. What did he do? Uh, he's that? an electrical engineer, uh, power systems. Oh, my dad's an electrical engineer too. Wow. Actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he works um, for. Well, he just retired actually this this year, um, as, like a, as of a month ago. But yeah, he he works for um, he worked for the Southern Company for many years down in the southeast and did uh, distribution. So he was involved with that. Uh, is so freaky because that's <laughs> what my brother and my father and my grandfather all did. Really? So my oh. my grandfather was. Um, he got his electrical engineering degree at Ohio University in the 1920s, and so he was in at the very beginning mm. of a, you know how to string power lines across states. <laughs> wow. And so he was in charge of West Virginia, the power in West Virginia, basically. My brother is uh, way, way up in American Electric Power wow. right now, so he's. Uh, Does that come up at Thanksgiving? You talk about. <laughs> Power? Power distribution systems. All the, well, yeah. it came up my whole life. You yeah. know, <laughs> when, when you're on the family vacation, you drive by the substations and you take tours of the nuclear power plants and, and of course, all the big dams and hydroelectric power. It was, you know, constant phot photography. Yeah. Of, and, um, oh, what's the size of that line? Oh, that's a 500 kV. Oh, well, where does it go from and to? And <laughs> Did you find that? Inspiring at all, or in interesting, or how did you find that growing just up? Or it was just part of life. I mean, you you grew up with this too, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Taking pictures of substations. <laughs> <laughs> there was one cool thing. I don't remember how young I was, but my dad took me to work at Savannah Electric, and uh -huh. they had this gigantic board that I guess it's been so long ago. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I guess it showed the status of various substations and things. Yeah. On that power grid, and I remember being really impressed by that. Just thinking it was so so cool. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I, I've got definitely kind of growing up around, you know, having an, an engineer and some of those engineering and scientific things around. Yeah. It probably did play some kind of role in nudging me in a certain direction or it, it you know, coupled with my interests in some way. Even though I didn't, you know, neither one of us ended up doing that, being electrical engineers. But, right. I don't know, there's something to that, right? Like kind of being surrounded by something scientific and something... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, totally. Um, and uh, it, was, it was the thing I rebelled against. I didn't want to be an engineer. Um, but then continuing the generation, so my nephew and my son are engineers. Right. So. <laughs> so you skipped and everybody. <laughs> well, my mother's a catalog librarian, so I landed someplace on the academic side of science, oh, <laughs> sort cool. of, of engineering, away from engineering. And they just let me do whatever I wanted. Um, but they, my mother always provided opportunities, but there was... 
So yeah, electrical engineering. So my brother does electrical reliability of the, the grid stuff. Hmm. Um, and my father was uh, at GE. They were, um, it was the power, um, power plant sort of side of things. So he did bids and contracts for GE to build power plants and power systems. So hmm. he designed them. Yeah. Yeah, and he was one of the very first people in electrical power with a computer. So he was on the cover of IEEE magazine back uh. around 1954 <laughs> <laughs> in front of this room-size computer with all the, the lights and knobs and everything, and they used that. Too. It was a very cutting edge. Did, the time. did you get the see that or you, you get no they never that. let us come down they never to the, let you come down to the lab now it's too important office. well they just all commuted into the office everybody in schenectady seemed to work for ge then it was like the the, the, the town was built on that or you know that was a huge part that of the was town, a huge you know. part of the of the economy there yeah but then you moved to was it philadelphia, philadelphia at some yeah point? so he yeah. got transferred to philadelphia okay. to, um uh more um i don't actually know what he was doing there um, and GE, GE had a research lab, which he was not at, but they were kind of um, applications, research, engineering, learning how to use computers and, and design grids. And then in Philadelphia, I think he was really in the middle of the actual design of that. And then GE imploded in the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. um, uh, all of these engineers who were hired in the 50s and who made America electrical <laughs> between GE and Westinghouse, um, uh, Jack Welch came in and fired ten thousand people. Really? So my father was out, wow. and that was a, oh, that wow. was actually a very life changing thing. That's a reason I don't work for a company. Yeah. Um, that's a reason I've been worried about my brother working for a company his whole life, and my son working that. for a company. He saw the kind of ruthlessness of it. Of like, at some point, somebody high up could just decide you don't work here anymore. <laughs> That's right, yeah. and you've trusted your whole life to them, basically, yeah. that you were going to have your whole career there. You get up every day, you take a shower and shave, and you go, go there, and you, you, that's a huge part of your right. life, and you would hope that that relationship would be reciprocated in some way. It's like, I'm devoted to you. I would like you to be devoted to me as well. This needs to be a, a partnership. Right. Yeah. right. It just shatters. It completely shatters self-confidence. And so he had had an opportunity a few years before that to go off into a private consulting company. Uh, one of the engineers in his group just decided he had, a, he had a brilliant idea and he just was going to take, you know, a few guys with him and go do this. And so they went off and did that. And they were, they built their own company, were fabulously successful. And it turns out Ralph, we had great connections. We were playing bridge one so, day. So that's, that's what your dad did? Sorry, no, he didn't go with them. He stuck, oh. he was loyal. He stuck to the company. Okay. That's where he worked. And these other guys picked up and moved off and went to a company, make, make their own company, yeah, to, which to grew, consulting. yeah, and did their own consulting, um, and are really well known. Um, and that engineer, it turns out, is Ralph Keeling's uncle. Oh, <laughs> it's the small world. It was a very small world. Very small world. <laughs> we were playing bridge one night, and and Ralph's mother was there, and that's her brother. So the name isn't the same. Mm. And uh, we were talking about where we grew up and. Said, oh, it's connected. And he said, oh, you look about the same age as my cousin. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> it turned out oh, wow. to be Louise's brother, who was my father's um, colleague, who had gone off. He's a brilliant engineer. What is and that? There's seven billion people on the planet. Why does this happen? <laughs> right. We're connected. We're connected. Oh, man. That's so funny. 
Uh, so he ended up going back to GE um, after he was out for a few years uh, working consulting and working in National Electrical Reliability Council. So he was working on the reliability of the national grid yeah. in Princeton, actually. And then he went back to International GE for 10 years. But he never got that trust reestablished. I bet not, no, because yeah. that scars you for life. You've seen how, it can, how things can fall apart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I like tenure track. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, it, yeah, it's hard to get, get one, but if you can get on one. Right. <laughs> there's at least some sense of we've, we're going to make a commitment Stability. to Stability. Here yeah. we are. Yeah. It's like you can at least get engaged and eventually get, get married, and there's some commitment there. I'm <laughs> to loyal to you, and you're loyal to me, and we're fine. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it uh, sounds like your folks were, su were supportive. and you know, the, Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, that's good. That helps a lot. That makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah. What drew you into physics, right? You did physics and, and music. I want to talk about the music stuff, too. Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting my dad. Too, you know? I, yeah? Yeah. Um, so physics is electrical engineering if you go to a liberal arts college, which I did. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't, op they had an engineering option. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do physics. Mm. Um, why? I don't know. It was random. Um, it was liberal arts. Well, you said you rebelled against it a little bit. Yeah, because yeah. I did phys I went, I went to. I went to the one college where you could do, legitimately do, completely do a music degree and a liberal arts degree. Yeah, Oberlin. Yeah. Oberlin, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so they have a double degree, and it's a small town, so the practice building is here, and the physics building is there, just across the green from each other. Uh, so it's completely integrated. There are other places where you can do double majors, or you could cobble it together in Rochester with the Eastman School and University of Rochester mm. is probably the closest. But they're half 20, 20 to 30 minutes apart from each other. They're really different worlds. Yeah. I know that because my son ended up going to University of Rochester. <laughs> um, but at Oberlin, you really go in um, fully committed to both. Mm. Um, oh, wow. And so you're practicing four to six hours a day and doing your liberal arts oh. for all the rest of the hours of the day. Oh, and did you enjoy that? Was that, that did yeah. you like that? Did you like that environment and that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's very. Um, uh, it was a very st a strict routine. Um, I never stopped. Never uh, practically had a minute to stop working. <laughs> I guess I like that. <laughs> Are you continuing that? Social you continued life was a little minimal, but social life was around that. So we had a co-op system, no fraternities and sororities. That also drew me to that place. Mm. Um, so there's, uh, there were co-ops by lottery, so you just would join one. So is it the same as the fraternity sorority? It's or sort of the same. You live in the house, maybe or maybe not, and then you do all your cooking together and meals together. Uh, okay, so, so, you were, so you were living in, in that kind <coughs> of yeah, arrangement? Yeah, for five years, yeah, basically f four years in that arrangement, four and a half years. So you had like a community there. Totally, right? yeah. of everybody else also working hard, so. Oh, that's, that yeah. sounds really good. And going on hikes and walking down the streams locally, it's it's a very sort of nice nice way to live. It's a, yeah, mm -hmm. that's it's the, that peer group is so important, right? The peer yeah. group you go through yeah. university with, yeah, because uh, it it might even it might even matter more than the <laughs> the professors possibly. You know, you need the you need good professors, and that's certainly. I'm not trying to put that down, but like your peer group, I know yeah. for me sometimes I learned way more from you know working with my peers than I did necessarily from the, yeah. the lectures because you can support each other, you can challenge each other, right? You can socialize. It all gets blended into one big thing, into one big community. Yeah. And I, I can't, I, I can't help but feel like, so to me, from where I'm sitting, it's, it's really clear. You're like a pillar of this oceanographic community. Uh -huh. You're like a really important 
you, uh-huh. you, you bind a lot of people together. <laughs> so I can kind of see how you sort of continued that. You know, yeah. you had this, this communal social environment where you were working, you were socializing, you were making you know, connections with people, and that, that, that has yeah. been something that that's kind of your one it's of your roles I, now is the way you, you are and how you have, have been, and it's benefited, you know, the whole field and everyone. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't actually put that together, but that's, that is the way Obalon works. It sounds horrendous to work nonstop 16 hours a day, but you're actually in a community working. Yes. Uh, so you're always in the, you know, for physics, I never did my physics homework in my room. I did it at the physics library. Mm. And we'd sleep on the tables there, you know, <laughs> trying to get our <laughs> problem sets finished. <laughs> you're doing it together, right? You're and we were doing it together, together. absolutely. Yes. I'm not, it, it, yeah, if we really got stumped, there was always um, <laughs> one, the student that was a year ahead of me who's been a professor at Caltech ever since, <laughs> there was always Jim <laughs> to ask, or somebody to you know, figure it out from. And the professors were right down the hall during the, so it was good. And music, Practicing is very isolated, but you're in a practice building of 200 pianos, and so you step out for a breath of air and go down to the lounge, and mm. people are just sitting around playing bridge or something, and maybe you feel, well, that's a little bit idle, wasting your time, isn't it? But you sit around and talk, and um, and then music becomes very communal, too, because you start accompanying, as soon as you're a pianist and you're there, you're good enough to accompany anybody any of the soloists, so I ended up with, with singers and flutists and trombonists mm. that I worked with all the time. So, yeah. And you're, you're, still, you're still doing music, right? I still, still do that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you've kept yeah. that balance as well in terms of, you know, something It's totally something part of the fabric of my life, yeah. Uh-huh. I have a piano partners, and I do amateur chamber music, and um, and so my, my piano partner's home is just full of music all the time, so... Hmm. She's got nonstop, you know, quartets and trios and coming into play. And if soloists are in town for um, really good ones for uh, chamber music performances, they'll come to her house to practice because it's quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it's so so it actually she and I are very alike that way. And my husband is like this. Um, our work is our life, and life is work. <laughs> yeah, but it's not it, it's not as dire as that might sound to somebody who maybe isn't familiar with that mode of like it's it's social and it's work and it's and it's play and it's it's the whole thing, and I kind yeah. of feel like these conferences do a decent job at embodying that too. Yes, it's it's all of that. It's not you, you. There's no there's no clocking in, clocking out. There's no you know now we have started, now we are finished. There's right. a continuous process of you know of socializing and working. And uh, I think it's important to realize that because, um, you know, if, if it, that's part of what I enjoy so much about coming to these is kind of being with the, the community, being with the ocean, you know, oceanographic community and seeing familiar yeah. faces and seeing people and uh, seeing what everyone's up to. It can be intimidating when you first start out and you don't know anybody, but then once you start to get to know people, you can you know, relax into it a little bit. Right. Well, even your very first year here, you usually come with a cohort of students and from your own institution, um, or if you don't, they, actually, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I've always been at rather large departments. Um, if we do a good enough job with activities and networking for students who might come from uh, small, much smaller groups. That's a good point, yeah. That's, yeah. that's important because this community aspect is so important and you yeah. know, maybe it's, it's um, rel- maybe it's relatively easy to get into the community if you know someone or if you're 
your professor is reasonably well known and connected, but maybe it's mm-hmm. a little harder if you're out slightly outside of that social yeah. circle. Then there's something that you have to try to try to penetrate. You have to try to get get noticed. I like that your instinct is to like draw in. You know, let's yeah. let's let's see if we can <laughs> find anybody else who's interested. I, I love that about the oceanographic community. I feel like overall, we we are pretty. We try to be inclusive like that. We try to draw people in. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, honestly, if you're willing to spend your days, you know, doing this stuff and you know hitting your head against the wall about um, which sigma surface you should use to you know look at this. Or about, you know, which stream function you should use on which density surface and which configuration. Right. If you're willing to put up with that, we'll have you. Why your program's not making it do that. Yes. Right. We'll have you. Come on. Yeah, come on in. You can, you can be with us and suffer with the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Good question. I've heard, I've heard that. I think the, well, I guess they evaluate, everybody gets a chance to evaluate the meeting. So hopefully that feedback gets in there. Yeah. We have a student, um, always have a student uh, on the organizing committee for these meetings, and they've been doing the pop-up talks, and they um, got the K-12 program going at this meeting. I hope those students and teachers all got integrated well. I don't really know. I'm, a, I'm, I'm not part of the organizing. Yeah. I'm just a past officer. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's an important question. I don't think we have to answer it right this second, but ah. we can we can put it out there, right? We get there, the, yeah. We got that question out there. So you lived in Germany for a year? to go. If we can go back to the... Sure, back to the history. Yeah, yeah, that was for piano. Yeah, yeah. how was that? Uh, it was great. Uh, uh, <laughs> except for the weekly piano lesson, it was great. <laughs> except for the, <laughs> the piano lesson part was not great. <laughs> well, I clearly have chosen the right profession. I, wish I, I should say that. Um, so that was um, my last hurrah as a... Uh, as really seriously studying piano, um, and I didn't, you know, I was I was clear from the arriving at Oberlin, which is one of the best conservatories in the country. You show up and listen to the rest of the freshmen the first week and go, oh, oh. and then your teacher says, oh, <laughs> looks like we need to go back to basics here. How does your thumb work? <laughs> <laughs> Here's the, a Bach uh, invention, and they're playing list. <laughs> and, and so my technique never caught up. Um, and then uh, because I was kind of at the bottom of the heap musically there, I had a different teacher every year. Um, at, at Oberlin? At Oberlin, at, yeah. Uh, mm. Yeah, the top of the heap got you know the very best professors, and they went on to brilliant solo or teaching. Prof- pro- you know, I guess the career direction there also is academic if you want a long, long lifetime of stability, you want to be in a music department teaching piano or theory or composition someplace. So being a professor. So it became clear, like, uh, okay, this, this... Week one. It, it could work out, but I'd probably have, like, you'd probably have to work super, super, like, insanely hard to make that happen. So you had to weigh it for yourself, like... Okay. Does that look like a likely path, or what are you interested in? And yeah. I'm just I'm trying to pick up on the kind of mapping process you went through. Well, I like think yeah, I, I I think the lovely thing my mother did for me was let me map my for myself, mm. and my father. Both of them never said this is what. Oh, we noticed that you're good at this. You should do this. Mm. And here's you know here's the, all the stuff you should do to do this. Um, and then you know at the end of that you go wait a minute that's not who I am. Um, they just let me, I've, I felt like the first, once you finish high school, well, even starting in middle school, you're starting to close doors. You're, you're always expanding and learning lots of things. And if you're, if you're kind of 
like a Renaissance person and you like everything and everything everything seems to work out, um, how do you choose? Yeah, yeah. What to, it's a huge whether problem. to be a writer or yeah. whether to be a musician Especially or when you're young, it's not obvious at all. An artist. I was never good at sports, so that was clearly <laughs> 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 so um, our daughter is fantastic at sports and I and I I um, have had to learn that whole side of how you know how people steer through that it's just so foreign to me but I've gotten used to it uh, but I was never good at sports and it could barely you know, well I love hiking but I could never keep up with anybody mm. I'm not strong um, so but all the all the academic things you can navigate and then it's sort of a matter of selectively I call it closing doors but it's really it's narrowing down to what you want to do which is what you do as an academic you eventually uh, at every stage are narrowing yeah, um, yeah. And you get into your PhD, and you still got you know the sky's the limit. Um, but if you're actually going to do it, you have to start focusing more and more. If you don't focus, you end up just deciding to go to do a different degree and maybe in a different profession, and yeah. you never settle. You have to pick something. You have to try it out. Yeah. Yeah, you never get deep, and um, and so as much as as painful as it was, that's. It kind of winnows itself. You you can see what you prefer to spend your time doing. Yeah, and and what yet you get rewards for because you do it well enough that it's not re, it's not rewards like awards. It's it's personal rewards Good because yeah. yeah because it's it's comfortable and something you want to keep doing. Yeah, um, I like yeah. that you said that it's painful because that's really honest. That like you know when when you kind of decide and feel like well I thought this might be a chapter in my life or I thought that I might you know be a professional musician. Uh, maybe not. Okay, I guess it's not going to work out, and you, you you chop that branch off of the tree. And it's not that you have to give up music or something, but it's just a possible pathway that you had in your mind that you realize isn't going right. to work. And yeah, it is it is painful, and it's I think it's it's um good to be honest about that because I think it's easy when you're first starting out to you know look at people with with very impressive careers. I mean, like yours, honestly, and to kind of to to not have that sense of like, well, no, like Lynn Lynn had to you know make Cut, cuts and decisions about yeah. what she wasn't going to do. <laughs> yeah, I loved art, you know, uh, painting and drawing. I'm very visual in my science, and, and probably that actually might have been a better direction than the mu music, but my parents put music in front of me, mm. and I diligently did music, and I loved it. Um, and the way I do music is very graphically. While I'm playing, there's it's, a, it's more of a... Um, it, uh, there's a scenery going through my head. You oh, know, wow. it's not... Yeah. So, and, and in my physics, the way I do math and physics, it's also that way. And I noticed that in graduate school. It was really clear that in the very, very good, excellent scientists teaching us, um, there were different modes. And there were National Academy members who were very graphical and ones who were very abstract. Hmm. Um, and it was, it was, since I was working with a very abstract advisor, it was nice to know that there was also the other way to go at it. Very where visual. you picture how it works and then you do the equations and the modeling. Yeah. yeah. Um, as opposed to, it, but there's nothing at all wrong with being very mathematical and getting to the end and going, there's the answer. Okay, now let's plot that up. <laughs> That's right. I remember having, uh, this, this is a little little anecdote that's relevant. I remember uh, we had lunch at Scripps a couple of years ago and I showed you a plot from uh, a socially related thing that had mixed layer depth. Uh -huh. And right away, 
I saw your wheel started turning, you started noticing things about the mixed layer depth plot that didn't look quite right, and it was just, well, in this region it's supposed to be a little bit more like this, and in this region, so you, you have such a clear, you know, intuitive visual, like you said, sense of what the ocean looks like and what we understand the ocean to look like, you know, you, and you draw these fantastic diagrams with, you know, this this water mass goes this way and takes this turn, yeah. and so that's that's um, been hugely uh, it's usually useful for the field, and uh, it sounds like it's been an enjoyable thing for you to put together over the yeah. you know over the years. It's like to take together all of these different strands of information from different cruises and from Argo, and to try to synthesize it in, in, in visually and try to put this piece together and that piece together. And yeah. you you have a real obviously you have a real talent for that, and that's something that your brain does really well. <laughs> that's the way. I, well, yeah, and you know, and in thinking about it that way, it's probably how I steered my way into. Uh, this kind of physics, because uh, I had a lot of other choices in college. I did low temperature, solid state physics, oh, did, and yeah. as internships, and um, I did my senior thesis on um, linear magnetic birefringence. <laughs> mm-hmm. was <laughs> it was a quantum ex- mechanics kind ex- of thing. Experimental or, or uh, it or? was uh, it was quantum mechanics, and there was some experiments involved at a NASA lab um, near nearby. Um, it was, uh, it didn't attract me as much as one of my students who, my, my co-students, co-colleagues, who went off to do oceanography, actually. Um, uh, she was trying to model for her senior thesis the whole core of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And so she built this plexiglass globe as a... Wow. <laughs> Experimentally? As an experiment, wow. yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, I thought, oh, that's not very rigorous, but it sure was attractive. <laughs> it was a physical model. Things. Yeah, yeah, try it out. Yeah. <laughs> See if it works. <laughs> that's, it can be a hierarchy in the hierarchy of models. It's like, well, I've got my numerical model, and I have my giant metal sphere in the other room. <laughs> and it's, it's on the hierarchy. It's on I, the Isaac Held hierarchy. You know. Right, and it's lovely at Woods Hole. They, uh, Jack Whitehead and now Claudia Chenides have this um, rotating lab, a rotating tank lab, where you can go in and actually visualize and see things. Yeah, Medweiser had, yeah. had one of those. He, he uh, bought a couple of those tanks, and he had a little lab set up, and he loves, loves doing those uh, tabletop yeah. rotating Earth experiments. Yeah. Can I ask you about the MIT HUI program? Yeah, Did you oh, so, that? right. Oh, so Germany, just, just to yeah, finish yeah, the yeah. Germany, I went to Germany to do one more year of music, and I was in a master's program there. And, and I already knew I wasn't going to go into music for good. And I don't know why I thought I would even be able to get into that conservatory there, but I just showed up. They they do auditions two weeks before the, the semester starts. No. So you have to, like, move to the country and you, you have to, like, yeah, move you to Yeah, I went for the summer. <laughs> I did my German courses at a Goethe Institute and, and, um, and went to Salzburg and did a music session, met a professor there and decided I would go play. You know, so he, so that's how I, I, I connected with the conservatory I ended up at. I don't know what I would have done. I was just kicking around, I guess. <laughs> I looked at it, now there was no plan, <laughs> no plan B or C. If, if they had said no thanks, you're like, well, I'm here anyway, actually, right. so I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> well, I thought I'd go up to, so I went to Freiburg, and I auditioned, and they let me in. I thought I'd go up to Cologne, because I knew some people from Oberlin that had gone there. Um, and then I had early music friends who were in Basel. There's an amazing music, early music school there. So um, it ended up being a 
phenomenal year, but I didn't get any kind of degree out of it because I was not technically capable. Hmm. Um, I didn't have the incredible, I couldn't play all the Chopin etudes. I guess that was the bottom line. Hmm. Uh, if you can't do that at that stage, you might as well quit. So I quit. <laughs> it's a, a hurdle. It's a clear, like, they, they're, they're using that as a... <laughs> it's a clear a level of technique that I never achieved. And um, and that I should have been able, I should have achieved before I even went to conservatory. I should have been there in high school. Hmm. And I wasn't. So so that was the end of the of formal yeah. music. Yeah, and I applied to graduate schools. And because I was in, that was actually the big story about oceanography. Because I was away from the physics department and away from my professors who were really pretty clear about what they thought we should do, unlike my parents. Um, you know, why don't you apply, oh yeah, you should go do um, lasers here, or um, oh yeah, low temperature physics at Yale, that's the place you belong. <laughs> and so you I- You weren't feeling it. <laughs> well, so I applied to all of those. Yeah. And then because Fran had gone to the Huey MIT joint program. Fran, sorry, who's that? Um, she was Fran Stevenson. Um, and she's now at USGS. Um, Is this a, a friend of yours, somebody you knew? She was a friend at Oberlin, um, yeah, and I don't, I, I can't, this is horrible. Um, I haven't seen her in so long, and I don't know her married name. Um, so, uh, so she was Fran Stevenson. Somebody can tell us. Somebody will tell somebody us. Fran Stevens, Fran Stevenson Hotches. Yeah, she's responsible for me being an oceanographer. She Thanks, and, and Nan Bray, um, <laughs> who, um, uh, when I applied, to graduate schools. Um, oh, also, Woods Hole Oceanographic had sent their um, Oceanus magazine to our physics department, and it was sitting in the student lounge, and I read it one day, and that sounds pretty cool. And then several students applied for the summer program at Woods Hole, and the most brilliant of our group didn't even get that. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Well, they must be really selective, because <laughs> how we didn't get in. Um, uh, but then I thought, well, I'll take a chance and apply, and so I did. So, the, so the, yeah, the physics student lounge, one student went on to do that, someone else who applied to the summer program, hmm. it's just sort of there, and that's another question. How does the information get out to people? How Lisa Levin happen? had a yeah. wonderful story about how she got engaged in it at her plenary talk yesterday. Um, we all have a path, somebody that somebody that told us it was there because our professors sure wouldn't have told us. <laughs> they didn't know. <laughs> they didn't they know. know. <laughs> uh, but they were open to it. Uh, oh, there was also a ad for overwintering at South Pole. Yeah. That sounded really cool. I'm really glad I didn't do that. But that... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, boy, yeah, getting out and in, into um, something really exotic. It sounded cool. So I applied, and I thought that I would never get in because I had shown no interest in oceanography, never done a project in it, didn't know any fluids, and they really wanted me because uh, ah. they want because we want physics degrees. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really good training for yeah. you know physical oceanography. Was the program new at that point? I don't know the history of that program as well as I should. Um. Well, it wasn't real new, I guess. In this, in the looking back over history, it was pretty new. Um, the first wave of graduates had already finished. That was the Harry Bryden, Nelson Hogg generation. Mm. Um, they had, uh, they were, they were actual joint program graduates. They had been training oceanographers for a long time at MIT and Harvard, and um, and Woods Hole was where people could do research. 
And so then they put this joint program together probably in the late 60s. Okay, um, yeah. And, but in terms of being females there, yeah, we were, we were right there and cutting edge. So, hmm. uh, so Nan Bray wrote me a couple page handwritten letter about how wonderful oceanography was and she loved it and she'd been diving on wrecks in the Mediterranean over the hmm. summer and, and, so this um, is somebody who was in the. She was, was a, yeah. She was already there. a second year student at. Oh, a student, yeah. At uh, Woods Hole at the joint program, and I think just that personal touch because I was in Germany, I couldn't come visit. I think they were inviting people to come by for open houses, but I couldn't do that. Um, yeah, personal touch, yeah. Somebody that letter, you a person inviting you in a person like that can be really important. Right. Of all the graduate programs I applied to, that's the only one that had a student who wrote to me. Yeah. So. <laughs> not a not a form letter, you know, not a uh, not, no. not a brochure that's printed out, you know, that, right. that personal personal connection. Yeah. So what was the what was the program like? The how, joint how program? You, yeah. How did you find? I guess that was your introduction to the community, and that was your. So what was the? Yeah, it was fine. This, yeah. Um, yeah, I still worked down the hall and across the parking lot from two of my group, uh, Terry Chereskin and Bill Young were uh, part of the four, and Bill Dewar was the fourth of us who finished up. So. Yeah. Uh, we had three others who didn't finish. Oh, so it's so pretty small, pretty small cohort for your... Uh, yeah, but that's typical, I think, of all these. Uh, yeah, we don't usually have more than five, six, seven yeah. at Scripps in a year, and Woods Hole doesn't either. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, we started with... I think we started with seven. Were you Maybe most, six. Did you spend more time in... Uh, in Woods Hole. Uh, in, oh, so you, most of your time was in Woods Hole. Okay, and... I yeah. guess I hear it's different for different students. Some students end up spending more time up in Cambridge, and some folks yeah. spend more time down in Woods Hole. So you were right there. It depends you know, on your advisor. So it depends yeah, on who yeah. you choose. To, who, Well, actually, in those days, they assigned an advisor when you showed up. So, hmm. um, so I was assigned to Mike McCartney, who then I worked with for 30 years with mm -hmm. grants and things. Um, and uh, he's in Woods Hole. Uh, and then you do courses for two years. And sort of by the end of um, those two years, I, it, that work I was doing with him was this Labrador seawater stuff, hmm. 18 degree water descriptive papers. But I, um, I couldn't figure out where it was going. It was sort of amorphous to me. And writing descriptive papers is really hard because you don't know where to start and end and what the story is. And, yeah. um, and I really, <laughs> really enjoyed my theory classes. And uh, Joe Pedlowski had just arrived. And so... And he taught a class, and I thought, oh, you know, I kind of really prefer to do that kind of work right now. Mm. I, you know, I didn't really know what I didn't know what I wanted to do ultimately. Which kind of work? Like what was uh, the, theoretical the work? Theoretical. Yeah. yeah so I yeah. switched, and so I did a theoretical thesis with Joe, and that was excellent. And he's one of these abstract thinkers. You know, you just start at the beginning, go to the end, and there's, you know, and you might have one plot in your whole book, um, <laughs> <laughs> because he sees it all. In the equations, yeah. and he sees the whole physical system the, laid out. The structure of the relationships is in the equations. You know, yeah. this is related to that, and here's how this is related to that process. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've never actually had this conversation with him. I should do that, because because my <laughs> my mode of doing of of approaching physical oceanography is different. Um, uh, but. <laughs> 
just putting this out there. The reason it was really um, comfortable to switch to working with Joe was I was used to p the, the weekly piano lesson model of learning. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so <laughs> I wanted the weekly theory lesson model of learning after courses were over. So you show up and you go through an hour or two of something really intense yeah. and then you're left to your own devices for go a week. Off and then and work know. for a week and then come back and Friday <laughs> at one o'clock and go through it for an hour and even though I sat actually right outside his office and there was a was an outside office and an inside office you know the inside one that's the way we would do it so I would sit there and work you know do my equations for a week hmm. <laughs> and, and, and then go and then I would go in and meet and he would always be able to say see six steps beyond whatever I had done <laughs> and it was it was phenomenal training it was um, uh, it was just um, just getting f the physical process understanding so deeply. I think that was really important. Yeah. That, that was those were good years, um, and the cohort was great. So um, some of them lived in Cambridge, and some yeah we were a very small group, but we had the years before us and behind us also to to hang out with. Uh, it was a very, very competitive, um, not competitive between us, but um, that general exam they have was uh, uh, really not clear that you'd pass. Hmm. Uh, they're really, um, they would fail 50%. Wow. Um, so we did have some issues with, with this model of education. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder about that. So what, what would happen if you failed it? Did, did you get another try, or was that no, it? No, you go find another that? life for yourself. Yeah, that was it, huh? That was, that that was, was the, the end. <laughs> that was the, you can't play Chopin's etudes of oceanography <laughs> in that program, so you need That's to That's exactly to right. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and so uh, you would maybe go, if you really were passionate and wanted to stay with oceanography, go somewhere else. Hmm. Um, you could get, you would get a terminal master's with that. Um, some people stayed on and have had w fantastic careers with those masters, stayed in oceanography. Yeah. Um, others moved elsewhere to, to finish up. Uh, I have no idea what happened in, in, our, in our cohort, one person failed. The year before us, so this is all public, isn't it? I'm not going to name any names. Um, they had a pendulum swing. And, and so it was clear that it was actually completely random. It really actually didn't have to do with our capability as far as we were concerned. <laughs> we thought, okay, we look at our cohort and we go, we're all, we're all good, you know, mm. what's wrong with any one of us? And why should any one of us get picked off? Mm. Um, so, so if you look back the previous years before us, you know, one year they'd pass seven, the next year they'd fail four and pass one. Yeah. And and there was no rhyme or reason, and it was deeply unsettling. So that was the difficult part. So we actually had a rebellion. Yeah. We wrote letters. Yeah. <laughs> and we uh, warded off all the prospective students for one year. Oh. <laughs> it, yeah. we, we told them all what, how awful this place was. It's rebellion, yeah, yeah. that's resistance. So, we, yeah, we, we, had a, we had a student, student activism, so... <laughs> This, this is such an interesting question to me because I, th I think it, it connects to so many things we're talking about, about um, having the freedom in life to try things out, maybe needing some signals as to which things could work and which things won't work, mm -hmm. but then 
you know, us as, as a community trying to figure out well, how do we give people that feedback? How do we give them that information? And one, yeah. one could argue that maybe the sit-down exam, you know, is that the way to do it or maybe not? You can have that conversation, right? You can ask, like, is that the actual hoop that we should be having people go through or should it be some other kind of evaluation? Yeah. And I don't know what the answer is. I just like, I just like posing the question because it's something I think about every now and then about, yeah. you know, let's, let's say maybe, uh, maybe you're just having a really bad week that week of the exam, for example, and you just, you just vomit and it just doesn't go well. And uh, how, how harsh would people be necessarily in like saying, well, that's it, you're, you're gone. You're, you're. And, yeah. and there's a, the contrast there too, right, between thinking about wanting to be as inclusive as, as we can, but also trying to give people you know, feedback about whether this career path is likely to work out for you yeah. or not. Because on the other end of it, there is a, a reality, as supportive as we all try to be, there's a reality of you know, limited funding, of limited places that are available, yeah. and it's just, it's, it's not... Um, and you, if you're gonna do science and do oceanography or anything, you have you're gonna have to contend with that. So you'll have to be be ready for it in some way. Yeah. 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 And again, I don't know what the answer is, but I just like I just that, that's such an important big question. Yeah, I think that what we were seeing from our point of view that was that it was randomly unfair. Um, it, it was yeah. random, yeah. so that made it look unfair. Yeah. That's what you want to avoid for and sure. Yeah. So yeah, you want to trust that you're your um, program that you're in, your graduate program, knows and does what's best is kind of on an even keel. Mm -hmm. um, and they have some objective judgment. Um, and to us, it looked like they clearly didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they didn't know, well, and mm -hmm. part of the problem was that there were actually no textbooks at that point, or no, there were a few um, monographs. Um, when Joe arrived, Pedlowski arrived, he was writing his GFD book, but it, it hadn't been written. Mm. Um, we were beta testing chapters and copying them for each other. And, wow. um, so you had to try to get stuff from papers, which are kind it of... It was papers, you know, and there, was, there were a couple sometimes. of very impenetrable, the very theoretical books that were whoever's favorite ideas. Um, we weren't using Spirit of Fleming and Johnson anymore. Um, we were reading a lot of paper. We were basically reading a lot of papers, and there was no actual um, clear uh, list of concepts and curriculum yeah. that you should study. And that must have been so hard because papers are certainly not written with the intention of I'm going to teach a bunch of graduate students how to do this. That's <laughs> right. just not the audience that the right. papers are typically written to. And there was our coursework, so so you know we had very well structured classes. They were taught very well maybe they were really difficult um but they were and in, in in retrospect that's what we were examined on but we didn't have any clue really what we would be asked and wow. the oral part of the exam was also ridiculous they invited every single but every single person in the department who had a phd was allowed to come to this sort of really? coliseum you know throw throw oh. the students at the lion's spectacle and they could ask any question, horrible. any question they wanted. <laughs> sounds horrible. Oh my gosh! So you were performing at the most crucial exam of your whole life yeah. in front of this group. Well, they abandoned. So our letter actually worked. We had influence. <laughs> yeah, the letter worked. It worked, um, and they had they Joe had just arrived, and they put him. 
he came from University of Chicago, so he came from an academic department. I don't know why MIT wasn't weighing in on this, but Woods Hole seemed to be in charge. And um, and that's why it was so egalitarian from their point of view. Oh yeah, all the postdocs could go to these general exam, oral exams, and see what they want to ask. <laughs> oh, <man>. And they <laughs> did. <laughs> I remember pretty much every minute of that exam, which yeah. was in 1978. <laughs> yeah. so, do you remember any of the? Uh, uh, the, the questions or the areas? The oh, definitely. Areas so Peter like, Rines no. had built um, uh, a pendulum. He put it up on the He's on the here, wall. By the way. Can, oh, yeah. <laughs> I love Peter. So, Peter's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he built the pendulum. Yeah, yeah, he put it. He built a couple pendulum. It was actually a mechanical one, and it was dangling from the roof. I definitely remember this, and um, and it was just sitting there static. And he he wanted he wanted people's intuitive idea about what it would do. What if he touched it? And yeah. so you had to sort of explain how a couple pendulum work. Mm. Um, I, I guess I did okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did you say something about like, well, there's different modes? I, I probably can, had a pretty good answer then. You can excite different modes depending on how you poke it or something right. like that, somewhere in that neighborhood. Exactly, you know? something like that. Yeah. Um, and then I was asked a question about, um, uh, Oh, I don't know. I, I was I, there were internal wave questions, and you know we were, there was a big blackboard, and we were at the blackboard, just deriving things, yeah. and um, and I was asked about barotropic and baroclinic instability. I remember going across the board on that. Um, I'm kind of blanking on what the questions really were. I remember stumbling through that, and um, but I got to the end somehow. And I thought I had just absolutely, completely flubbed the yeah. failed. And I came out and I came back later and said, wow, Lynn, that was the best, <laughs> <laughs> one of the best oral exams we've ever heard. Mm. And all I could think was, well, I guess all that piano performance practice actually paid off because I learned where to put my nerves yeah. by performing, being a performer. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Um, you, you must have gotten into a mode where, I mean, you can tell me, but... Uh, I imagine you got into a mode where it was more instinctive. It was just your instincts were working. You know, you had already fed your instincts. You had studied a lot and worked a lot. Well, you're at a and hyper high adrenaline level. I yeah. mean, everything is is you know going. Yeah. Um, but you you look calm. You look calm. Um, yeah. And <laughs> and you just keep calm and carry on. <laughs> you yeah. just you just do that through that adrenaline. Um, and with piano, I remember um, the success. Every year, you had to perform in a recital as part of the requirements of being at a conservatory. And every year, my nerves would end up in the wrong place. You know, the first year, it's your hands that shake so much you can't play. Mm. So the next year, you get it out of your hands, and it went into the pedal foot, and then I couldn't pedal. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and singers do that too. They learn to put all the nerves in their in their butt, <laughs> basically, <laughs> because that's where you're solid. Yeah. And and you're and with as a pianist, you're attached to the bench. You had a lot um, of practice at, and, at that process. Yeah. Right, and you learn how to um, calm yourself down before you go into that situation. Um, yeah, it's it's hard for me to even remember back to feeling that way because I don't feel that way anymore at all. No, I imagine you're more, more comfortable now. You know, I just, not <laughs> you just lecture and you perform. I play piano in a church. I play, you know, four or five solos on Sundays. Yeah. And uh, I never get nervous unless I know there's a really good musician that, 
in the audience or in the in the <laughs> congregation that I hadn't seen before, you know. It's, I go, oh. <laughs> it's like you've deeply internalized, like, things will be fine. It'll be all right. It's, it's okay. This will be okay. Yes. You've, you've been in that space, you know, yeah. often enough and, and tapped into that often enough that your, your whole, your body knows, yeah. your fight or flight response knows to calm down. Like, no, no, we're not going to get eaten this time. It's we're fine. Gonna we're going to deal. It's going to, it's going to work out. Right. So yeah, that was a, that was an awful experience. Um, and they, they totally, to their credit, they, um, they revamped and they wrote down their curriculum. Mm. They wrote down what they thought you should know. Yes. What are the modules? Mm. So you know what to study. Yeah. They changed the oral exam, so it was just the examining committee. Um, they have tried a lot of different experiments. I don't know what the joint program does now. They had a mode of um, everyone writing a master's thesis or kind of qualifying exam kind of paper. Yeah. Uh, which I, I think is really a powerful thing to do. We don't do that at Scripps. We're in the uh, written oral exam mode still after all these years. Um, UW did away with that exam completely. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I, I have no idea what that how they do that, but um, it's a it, it's a there's an important gate though. There's a you don't want to go five, six, ten years in a PhD, and it be the wrong. Yeah. Place. I, so in the in the program that I went through um, out at, at Colorado State, it uh, they they do have a qualifying exam and they do have an, an oral component to it and a presentation component to it. Uh -huh. Their approach has been, and this is when I was there, is uh, it, it's they want to give you that feedback, but they're not immediately going to send you away if it doesn't go well. You know, they'll uh -huh. they'll give you that feedback and they'll say, well, here's how we thought you did. Here's what you could do better. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can stay here if you like and try and keep trying and keep jump doing that and we'll be supportive of that. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that, that, I think that's that's one option, right? That's an interesting way to do it. So like, we will give you the feedback, but we're also not going to necessarily send you away, you know, if mm -hmm. it doesn't go well. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, there are many different ways to do it and there, there are advantages and disadvantages to that as well because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I imagine you could get, maybe imagine a super stubborn person who like, doesn't really hear the feedback, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. kind of like, I'm not saying that happens often, but I could imagine that as a, as a pathway of like... Well, it can. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a personality yeah. thing. You've decided for yourself, this is my goal. This is what I'm going to do for whatever reason, your own internal pressures or your own or family, or you've just decided this is what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And you just push through until it's done. I imagine that's more common, like if you're becoming a doctor or something mm -hmm. where there's a lot of external expectations too. For us, there's no external expectations because yeah. nobody even knew in our families what an oceanographer was. <laughs> yeah. You're gonna be a yeah. what? <laughs> That's right. But we kind of romanticize that too, don't we? We kind of romanticize the whole just keep trying kind of thing and like just dig in and yeah. almost kind of don't listen to any any feedback. And <laughs> it's uh, there's a balance to be struck there. Yeah. To like, well don't, to, to, you don't want to be so sensitive to negative feedback that you collapse right away, but you also don't want to be uh, completely deaf to, you know, information that this isn't working out, <laughs> this isn't going well. You need to have some sensitivity to that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. I guess it's just a life and wisdom thing. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well. So you've done a ton of research cruises, like you've yeah been, yeah yeah you've been been all over. Um, there was a I couldn't get it to load before the interview, but there there is a map 
that um, a link on your Wikipedia page that like mm. here's a link to all of Lynn Talley's cruise things. Oh. <laughs> so, like, there's a specific portion of the internet. Oh, that link might have broken a long time ago, oh, but maybe. yeah, that's that's interesting. <laughs> I should I should fix that there's then. I really should look at this. You don't have to. Don't don't feel don't don't feel if you don't like googling yourself and looking at your own Wikipedia, then don't don't. No, do, I have don't to do it for my mother so that she won't be so bothered by whatever's out there, so I can fix it when I have a whole day to work with Scripps IT. Yeah. <laughs> to, but um. Cruises, yeah, I've done a lot of cruises, but not in the, in, as I did most of my cruises in the 80s and 90s, yeah. um, and I had a couple of field projects in the, the knots. Um, uh, it must be a mode you, you like, I, I imagine, uh, right? Is it, you like going to sea? Is that something? I like going to sea. I, I don't crave it. Mm, um, okay. I know people who do. Um, I go because it's part of what I do. Uh, I... As I said, when I applied to graduate school, I'd never shown any interest. I'd never been on a boat, except for a little sailboat in Lake Erie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I never sailed. I never been on the water. I grew up in Schenectady. I grew up um, <laughs> not at the Jersey Shore, but in Pennsylvania. And my family's from Ohio. The only fish we ever ate was Mrs. Paul's fish sticks and <laughs> <laughs> cans of tuna. <laughs> so there was nothing aquatic about me, um, but. Because I was really interested in the ocean and interested in these larger scales, and and that really is Mike uh, McCartney working with him on these very large scales of the North Atlantic. Um, it was just a no-brainer to go out and do measurements. So I did go to see. Actually, my third semester in the joint program, I went to see Mike had a cruise. Mike and Harry Bryden off southeast New Zealand, southeast of New Zealand, down to the ice. Um, so I went on that. It was um, uh, it <laughs> on the Noor, um, the 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 pre midlife refit Noor. So it was the shorter Noor. Um, it was uh, we went through the Roaring Forties and the Fifties, and it, uh, and then down to the Ice Edge and back. Uh, pitching and rolling. It was uh, unbelievable the size of the waves. But I thought this was normal. You know, this is oceanography. <laughs> <laughs> that was your introduction. Was <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really high waves and really high and waves and yeah. high winds and and uh, we collected a phenomenal data set. Um, and uh, there were four. It was a very groundbreaking cruiser. Four women on it. Um, uh, which I'm really glad, really grateful for, because otherwise it was very difficult to be out there and be female. Mm. Uh, so there were all these issues back then, and women didn't go on ships, and uh, the crew were all Navy, and all of them were superstitious that women do not belong on ships. Really? We're going to sink because you're here. Seriously? Totally seriously. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's... Women don't belong on ships. <laughs> I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that. Yeah. That's, that's And they bizarre. made life really miserable uh -huh. um, for... Three of us. One, one of them, Mary, Mary Raymer, Mary, and now Mary Bryden. Now, um, she's just so, so straightforward and so nice, and and um, just connects with people really well. Yeah. Um, in a very sort of technical kind of way, you know, it's just friendly. Mm. Um, she's your next door neighbor, kind of wonderful person, and um, she didn't have any trouble because <laughs> she. She she really could connect with the crew. I, oh, okay. I was clueless. Okay. I was like, this was just beyond. Wow. <laughs> and it's weird to think about. I mean, that wasn't that long ago. You know, I guess we kind of like to think of our society as, as evolved, but then you're like, that, that wasn't that long ago <laughs> that folks had this yeah. active superstition. That's that's bizarre. I I can't. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
it's definitely it can be its own culture right being out on a ship it's its own little ecosystem it's its own little it is its own ecosystem and culture right and the crew are that's where they live Mm. um so you have to completely respect that um uh and yeah yeah um but i think your institutions have also done a very good job since those days of bringing in more enlightened crew and making it clear that if you're if you're signing on to be um, in the engine room or whatever or as an officer or whatever on a research ship you are hosting this group of scientists every month and it's going to be a group and you may not get along with them and this is your home but you work with them and I and I, I by and large I think that's improved there's always issues. Yeah. There's always people who got out there and went, and who just go nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was su- surprised to read um, there was an article that came out sometime last year about some of the awful experiences that, that uh, some women had had on on field expeditions, oh, specifically yeah. in the Antarctic. And then it, it again that was another case where I kind of felt like wasn't that long ago? Like it, it, it's, we, now. We kinda, it's now. It's now. It's not that yeah. it's long ago. It's right now. Yeah. Which is um, yeah. Yeah, I'm shielded because I'm much older now, and I'm in charge when I'm out there. And so, you know, who's going to mess with me? Um, but I know there's still, you know, people, young, young, early career women will come up and say, oh, yeah, it's still there. Um, what do you do? How do you, I mean, like you said, part of it is building that culture where that's just not acceptable, you know, where you make right. it clear that that's just, no, no, we're not going to put up with that. And I guess it's important for, yeah, oh, not guess, but I know yeah, it's important for people to speak up and to make that a normal, normal cultural thing. That like, you know, we're going to treat people, you know, like people and mm-hmm. equally and we're not going to, yeah. Right. Yeah. I guess it takes time, but you got yeah. to do it and work <laughs> on it. Um, so I think, how are you doing on time? Do you I think, know, you know, I'm I don't random. even know what time it is. I kind of, I kind of <laughs> just talk, but, um, uh. I didn't know if you had anything you had to get to. No, I think I've already missed a talk I was going to go to. So. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, we've been going. Yeah, I'm sure hour. I have. It's, yeah. It's, it's pretty. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this was kind of a, I'll just go wander off and, and hear some talks, and I'll I'll look up her abstract and find her in the hall. Okay, that's good. Can <laughs> um, we finish off with a little speed round? Is that all right? Absolutely. Give, give short answers to sure. things. Yeah, okay. thank you so no much ramble. for your time. Uh, <laughs> I ramble a lot. Yeah, you can. You can <laughs> ramble if you feel like it. It's totally, totally fine. So uh, I was thinking about, um, I find myself thinking about creativity in, mm-hmm. in science and in this field a bit, mm-hmm. and um, because I, I think sometimes from the outside it's not always obvious, like um, uh, it, it looks like a, it is a scientific and technical discipline, and I guess it maybe it's not obvious from the outside that there is a creative element to it, you know, you have to think of new things and put concepts together in new ways and think yeah. of you know, new ways to visualize stuff. Do you do anything to, to foster that for yourself, like to, to cultivate that, your, your own creativity, um, or, or maybe the creativity of the people you're working with or your group? Yeah, I need to do better on that ladder, much better on that. What I do, for, and, and, and you're bringing it up, actually makes me aware that I need to do this. The way I do it um, was I never thought of it as creative, Oops. so I never set a bar. <laughs> and so where, so where I discovered the creativity comes from, and I got this in graduate school, and I got this from Adrian Gill. I worked with him one summer um, at the uh, GFD Institute. Um, uh, is no question is too dumb. Mm. No question. Yeah. Any question you have, ask it. 
because if you have that question, that means you want to understand something and you want to go deeper on it. So in a seminar, no matter what question you have, somebody else will have that question. So go ahead and ask it. Be brave. Yeah. Um, and those questions, those simple questions, I keep notebooks with all my questions. And um, I'll see something on a map. Like you said, I see a funny mix layer. Okay, well, let's write that down. Or I'll try to remember. Now my brain is so fried. I don't remember all these things. You know, I don't remember what talks I went to yesterday yet. But that's, I try I write things down. That's conference life, though. It's just one one thing after the it's other. It's also <laughs> my life at this age. This, believe me, you get to this age, and and you're lucky if you remember anybody's name. <laughs> um, or you know, actually, you know, whether you gave a presentation on X Y Z last December or not. <laughs> oh, I did that. Oh, that's interesting. I don't even remember being there. Um, anyway, that aside, um, I, where it comes from um, and what I really began to appreciate a few years into it, it comes from just asking those absolutely basic questions and not being afraid to ask them and not being afraid to recognize in yourself that you don't know the answer. Mm. Because if you don't know the answer, you can go find out. Yeah. And that's where your ideas come from. That's the only place they come from. They don't come from saying, oh, I want to be creative about uh, what's happening at the tail of the Grand Banks today. Uh, well, I could say that. Okay, so, okay, I want to learn. I don't say, I want to be creative about the tail of the Grand Banks. I say, oh, today I want to learn about the tail of the Grand Banks. How does that current interact with that? And why does the Gulf Stream reattach over there? And does it, oh, it is a reattachment. Yeah. Or is it a separate current? Um, what's that sock thing that they write about in this paper? And then you start reading papers Every paper you read, uh, every lecture you go to, every class you take, you have you have to have a question. Yeah. You can't come yeah. out without a question. Yeah. And even any one of those questions will lead you in a research direction. I, I, even if it's only tangentially related, I'd say, you know, even if it seems kind of off the wall, yeah. then I think what you're saying is like, follow that, you know, follow, you've got a, you've got a creativity and a curiosity, I should say. You've got a curiosity, you've got questions, so just let yeah. that happen. You know, be go, a four-year-old. Yeah, go down those rabbit holes. Yeah. Be a three-year, four-year-old your whole life. That's what a scientist is. Yeah. We tell, we talk about children. When you blow on the CO2 monitors. Exactly. <laughs> do stuff like that. Right, blow exactly. on CO2 monitors. <laughs> that's what that's what we talk about when we work with little kids, when we're parents, or when we go into classrooms. We say every three and four-year-old is a scientist, hmm. and and what scientists need to remember is that every scientist is a three or four-year-old, um, <laughs> and to not be ashamed of that. And not yeah. to try and paper it over and pretend to, pretend to be erudite. Yeah. And I guess yeah. what can be tricky is I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> uh, I guess what can be tricky is finding a good way to balance that sense of creativity with the uh, practical necessities of like, okay, we got to get mm -hmm. funding, we got to get papers out there, we got to yeah. like that. That's a balance you have to learn, and then you have to fuss with that a bit. The best proposals are written in a question and answer um, mode, though. Mm. This is my question. Um, this is why I have this question. This is the evidence for why I have this question. It comes from that question. Yeah. Um, and then uh, this is the methods I'm going to use. And this is my, so the question is, oh, it's the hypothesis. It's the scientific method. Um, OK, so we, we gloss it up. You know, we, we glossy it up. We say, oh, you have mm. to have a hypothesis. What is a hypothesis? It's a question that you had that you think you have five different answers to. Yeah. Now I need to nullify the hypothesis. Well, that also is very intimidating. Oh yeah, I'm gonna go out and show that this is wrong. Wrong, wrong, <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong. Okay, mostly right. Let's try to break this. <laughs> what happens yeah. when you smash this theory? Let's see if we can smash this theory apart. <laughs> right. 
That's and that's the way you that's the only way you advance and that's the only way you're creative. Um so the creativity just comes from curiosity. Yeah, yeah. So you have uh, to keep that alive. And it? I think what I find overwhelming is that I have so many questions. <laughs> so now which one do you pursue? Yeah. And which ones fall off the garbage truck, you know, that I pursued for a month? It gets, and it gets back to pruning the tree again. It's another tree that's growing that you have to prune bits right. off of. Yeah, just like, you know, choosing maybe not to try professional music. And yeah, right. The, yeah, yeah. And I think what I see in scientists as they, as a, a mature from early career to late career is that they get better at um, just letting those questions flow. Hmm. Just let it happen. Yes. And, um, and, then, and then have all the training and all the tools and all the knowledge and interactions and cooperation with other people to be able to solve a question and nullify all those hypotheses and find the one that's right or find the four that are partially right and this one is really wrong Um, and how do I quantify the uncertainty that goes with that et cetera et cetera et cetera but if all you're doing all your life is quantifying the uncertainty and something someone else did then who cares (laughs) and what's creative There's nothing creative mm. in it. That's my. I, I I find that really distasteful. That's where I get judgmental. Mm. <laughs> I want to learn something. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> I don't want to learn that it's point nine plus or minus point zero seven five seven yeah. of whatever gunja units it is of whatever quantity it is. Yeah. Um, sometimes those numbers are really powerful, and they have to, and that's when they're interesting. It's mm. when they're powerful. Yeah. Um, it's like. <laughs> Finding the 51st decimal plates in the mass of the neutron or something like that. It's right. like, well, that, that is, it, it could be important, but there's something unsatisfying about it in a way because it doesn't connect with that feeling of, of wanting to know how the world works and wanting to know how yeah. all the bits connect with each other. Yeah, and so I'll be judgmental on that. I think to be a scientist, you have to know how, want to know how that connects. Engineering, I used to think, was just uh, being incredibly technical, capable technical capability of getting that 51st decimal place and I've, I've only begun to appreciate looking at all the engineers in the family and knowing engineers that that's not true at mm. all you know good engineers are also doing the same thing that a good scientist is doing they're just doing it to build something that works or uh, do some code you know do you know it, really good engineering is this is got fundamentally you know you want to build a bridge better you're going to have six different ways to think about going at it and try it yeah yeah, it's creative. You have to think about <laughs> things like um, cable lengths and things like that, and like, well, what's the most elegant kind of cable length that I could use for this kind of connection? <laughs> I bring that up just because there was one time my dad took me on a, a tour of, um, uh, he, he showed me, we were on a fairgrounds, uh-huh. and uh, there, there were some electrical poles with some equipment on them, and uh, on one side of the fairground there was the pole that was owned by the big power company, and uh, on the other side was the one that was just kind of owned by the fairground and maintained by that. And the one, uh, the the one that was owned by the big power company, all the cables were exactly the length that they needed to be, and there was an elegance to the design of it. Uh-huh. And on the other side, there's uh, of the fairground owned one. It was just a mess. And the <laughs> just strung just them up there. On, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it's just it looked looked uh, didn't look very very appealing. So it looked dangerous. You know, so, yeah, it looked dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I think that's part of why they were calling my dad down. Like, can you help us with, <laughs> with this situation that we have here? This is a, this is a mess. How do you handle writing? Do you th- do the same thing with writing? Do you kind of like just follow the well, not just, but do you you know follow the kind of question answer 
you, you try to you, you let this creative process you know, onto the page. Uh, I think the best advice I got on that was from uh, Jim Price at Woods Hole way back when I was a student. He said, give a presentation. So once you've given a presentation, you've told your story. Yes. And, um, and then, and then you uh, have read so many papers already, you know what the structure should be of a good scientific paper. Yes. Um, yes. So that's it. So giving so anybody here at the meeting or any meeting they go to has done their fifteen minute talk or their poster has the guts of a paper. Yes, and you can start filling it out. Start that's right. uh, yeah, filling out the d details and things. Yeah. Um, well, I want to I want to be really really respectful of your time. Sure. You know, thank you so much. <laughs> can we end with like you don't have to have a big like um, you know asteroid impact kind of answer to this. Okay. But I kind of want to hear your thoughts about like. What should we do next as a community? Like, what are we, as you know, the oceanographic community? What What are some of the targets we should be aiming for? And what are the What are some of the Are there other There are lots of big projects that are going on right now that are really exciting, like you know, putting biogeochemical floats in the ocean. Yeah. You know, so common, all of that. Are there mm -hmm. other things on the horizon you you kind of see or want to want to get uh, involved with or? Um, well, here's my chance to say, huh? <laughs> Sell a program. Um, yeah, I'm on the road selling biogeochemical Argo right now. I yeah. think it's, um, for me, it's just going to be, it's the revolution that's coming. It's now. Um, we have sensors. We have capability. We just need money. Um, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of enthusiasm. Our SOCOM dinner last night got, you know, drew in 35 people yeah. you know, <laughs> to come hang. And our town hall was big yesterday. Um, we were uh, fabulously um, um, appreciative. I mean, the word is um, deeply appreciative of NSF for um, having faith and trust in us and just saying, here's a big, go for it and do it right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's a big enough program that we can do everything from from the modeling end to the state mm -hmm. estimation to making sensor development and data management that wasn't there. Everything had to be developed basically from bits and pieces that were around, but pull it all together and give us the freedom to do that without worrying about funding for yeah. a, fun, a bunch of years. Yeah. I, that has been really um, uh, life-changing, career-changing, I think science-changing. It, it really is a good model, and, and NSF does that occasionally. You, know, you have enough money for a big, yeah. big type projects. Um, that said, that gave us uh, the uh, the groundwork for being able to build a, a global network and make it like Argo, regular Argo. Our Argo has completely changed uh, the way we observe the ocean. So here I'm not talking about techniques instead of science, but I think the science you get at is um, is uh, the same kind. Of, with Argo, we're just touching the surface still. I mean, every region has questions you can go in and ask, yeah. and you've got Argo data now to, to help you answer it. Absolutely. And satellites and stuff. So I think bringing that in with the biogeochemistry is really, really important. Yeah. Um, uh, oh. This is a, just as a personal, I'll tell you a quick personal anecdote. Uh -huh. uh, well, not really an anecdote, but just a perspective. Well, um, and uh, to, uh, So uh, it, it doesn't mean anything, but it's been really fun for me to watch SOCOM evolve because uh -huh. I had nothing to do with it, but I was. I feel like I was in the room when it was starting to come together and was uh -huh. conceived. Because um, working with my advisor, he was part of one of these Clivar groups, uh -huh. you know, Taka Takaito. So he would occasionally take me along to Princeton, you know, to sit in a room with, um, you know, a, a, a few scientists and like Anand Nandeskan and yeah. and then folks who, um, and they were talking about what would eventually become SOCOM. Yeah. And what was so funny is I remember the conversations were were like, well, this will never happen. 
you know, this, but if we could have anything we wanted, <laughs> like if we could have a kind of pie in the sky kind of program, yeah. what are the possibilities? And so I feel like yeah. uh, I was very much just a fly on the wall. Again, I didn't have anything to do with putting it together whatsoever, but I got to, to watch folks kind of you know, be creative and kind of wonder about like, well, what could we have and what could we put together? Yeah. And just to, to, to see it actually happen and now to be a real thing and a real research program with people working on it and floats in the ocean and you know outreach and a big presence like here at the conference yeah personally that's just been fun i don't know um and uh yeah so it's uh i don't know it yeah it's been great great to watch that yeah and i think the the sort of the big um big really unknown the areas that still have you know just you know 90 percent of stuff still to be done is climate uh, how how all these systems interact, um, top to bottom of the ocean, at the top of the atmosphere, and over the land, and so there's so many possible mechanisms and processes and everything. And when we started doing climate science, or edging over to it from physical oceanography, say in the 90s, um, I just I, w- I was so overwhelmed with how many questions you could possibly hmm. ask that I kind of backed off. Now, how many feedbacks can I write down on this <laughs> sheet of paper that all have not been explored yet? <laughs> it's too linear. It's too <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. And then the nonlinearities, um, and um, and I've always wanted to understand things down at kind of the molecular level, you know, really the process level, not just make it all come out right in in a statistical way in a model, which is a completely valid way of approaching science as well. I shouldn't, I say, I just, everybody has their style. My mm-hmm. style's at the process level. Yeah. Um, and for things as nonlinear and complicated as climate, maybe that's not so easy. <laughs> but there are, you know, once you, we start um, chipping away at it, there are clearly things like that. You know, you just study this process or that one or this coupling or that one, and then it turns into this whole cottage industry and then you move off to the next one so this whole thing with how does mixing work in these bottom boundary layers you know look at all the papers on it you know all of a sudden that happened in the 70s or 80s with blocking in the atmosphere you know charney sort of introduced this thing and you know four years later got a thousand papers on it that happened since i haven't been in the field very long but that happened since i started you know that (laughs) that wasn't a thing when i was first starting in grad school and now it's a a big thing the idea that Oh, maybe yeah. The mixing on the bottom. <laughs> maybe that's actually something that's super important physically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that's yeah. yeah there's yeah. there's so much work to do. How do you feel? Fine. How I'm feeling about the interview. Gotta eat. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. When well, I no, saw I... when I saw you come in with that, I'm like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I will eat it. Got your breakfast. Yeah. Please do. Please um, do feel free. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um. Well. Good. Thanks. Yeah. Do you feel okay about like it? I rambled. I thought that was great. No, I okay. That was exactly exactly what I was hoping for. You know, it's supposed. To, it's just a conversation. You know, it's just okay. exactly like that. And I, yeah, I thought uh, I thought this. I was optimistic. And I thought it would. Look, <laughs> not in a bit. No, I. I was really looking forward to this. I knew it would be. Um, no, but I am really honored that you came and spent your time yeah. here. I mean, it's it's big. You you got up and you got ready and you said, okay, I'll go sit in a room. You didn't know what this was. You took a chance. I appreciate you doing that. Well, it's way less intimidating than the AGU thing yesterday, I'll tell you. (laughs) Feel free. Don't don't let me stop you if you want to. Oh, that's okay. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, You know, I got up and did my text messaging to home and read a little email and came on over. So, um, yeah, good. So There you have it. My conversation with Lynn Talley. Thanks again to Nancy Bompey, 
who works with the AGU, for helping me find a room. Uh, she helped us find a quiet room at AGU Ocean Sciences in Portland, where we recorded this interview. And uh, that was important because, really, it's hard to find a quiet space at those conferences. Every room is busy. There are always people coming and going. So that was, that was essential. This really wouldn't have worked nearly as well if uh, we had to just park in some conference room somewhere. Uh, so yeah, thanks again to Lynn and to Nancy for helping uh, put, a, put a room together. Yeah, I still don't have a fancy tag at the end of this. Do I need one? I don't think so. I, I'll just awkwardly ramble on until the end of it. See you later. <laughs>